Hey everyone, this is Cassius Felicella and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast where we interview up and coming founders running some of the most innovative technology companies in the world. My guest today is Jesse Draper, the founder of Halogen VC. So Halogen is a firm focused on investing in female founders, primarily in the consumer tech space. This was an awesome conversation because of how honest it was, and we were able to talk about some difficult topics, including barriers in the tech industry, as well as what we can do to change them. I'm super excited to get into this episode, so without further ado, let's jump in. I'm really curious about the Nickelodeon days. Maybe we could start there. Like we hear a lot of stuff about what it's like being in Hollywood, what it's like being an actress, what it's like being an actor, but no one actually talks to the actual source often. They just get a second glimpse at it. What was that like? I would love for you to talk about that. (laughs) Um, I, let me go back 20 years. Um, I loved it. It was so fun. Um, I was, yes, I was an actress. I went to UCLA for their school of theater, film and TV. And, um, I wanted to be an actress. Uh, I had grown up in Silicon Valley and, um, around incredible men in technology, but I didn't think I could go into technology because I was female. And so, um, I went into entertainment as any young girl who sees Hollywood does. And I, you know, my aunt was like the woman in my life who, I was close to who worked and she was a very successful actress in the nineties, uh, eighties and nineties. Her name's Polly Draper. And, um, she actually has a new show coming out. Um, and I wish I could plug it and I can't remember what it's called, but she, um, so I thought, Oh, that's what women do. Cause my mom worked incredibly hard raising four kids. Um, but I was like, Oh, that's what women do. It, Nickelodeon was amazing. I mean, I came out of school. I was very lucky. I did this movie, um, with my aunt, she'd written this movie and it was called the naked brothers band. And, um, she said, Oh, Jesse's trying to act. Um, and she wrote me a role in this incredible movie. And I didn't think too much of it other than my family is very, we are performers, all of us, and it's all kinds of performers. Some may say talentless performers, but, we love to perform at family functions. So when my aunt said, Hey, will you be in this movie? I literally thought it was like something for my grandfather's birthday or something. I thought we were like doing something like that. And she said, you need to come to New York. And I got there and I was like, Oh, this is like a movie. Um, and she was making this movie. She made it on a budget and, um, it was hilarious. It was like the early days of Miley Cyrus, Um, And it was kind of like that type of thing. It was a little kid's rock band and her kids are the, um, the stars, Nat and Alex, who are my cousins. So we made this movie and then I went back to my acting, my cattle calls, et cetera. And then she said, Hey, we're going to go show it at the Hamptons film festival. Do you want to come? And I said, sure. So I went to the Hamptons film festival with them and we showed the movie. There was a big screening And I remember Albie Hecht stood up and he was the head of Nickelodeon at the time. And he said, he asked a couple questions and um, he then reached out to Polly and said, I want to make this a TV show. And so I auditioned for Nickelodeon and, you know, uh, was on the show for a couple of years. I was one of three adult characters and it was pretty cool because I got to work with my family and my aunt definitely kicked off my career. 
it was fun. I mean, these kids are all super famous actors now. I mean, I think I also understand uh, child actors like in a whole new light, like just really personally as an adult, I really like got to know their families and their parents. And, um, you know, I look back and I think like Tony C. Wright, who was Kasim's mom, was like such an incredible mom, like showed up every day, um, like watching her kids, like a lot of them had little siblings who occasionally would make it on the show because it was really like a family show. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was super, it was just like, I blink, I feel like I blinked and it was over. It was such a fun thing. We did three seasons and I have crazy stories, crazy memories. Uh, just so fun. That's awesome. What would you say is something misunderstood about VC, the current industry you're in? I mean, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Like I'm a female venture capitalist and there aren't a lot of us. We all know each other and we all try to work together and there's not enough capital going towards women. You know, 2% of venture capital goes towards women. And I feel personally responsible for that because I'm a VC. So when, you know, this is like the founders speaking, saying they're only getting 2% of the venture capital funding. And so that means us as VCs need to go raise much more capital. Um, but women, we're there's a block for um, not just necessarily women, but for emerging managers uh, to get more dollars from like the larger institutions. There's like something very flawed in the system, um, and so I think something misunderstood would be founders look to us and think, why won't you write us the check? And we have to be so thoughtful about like what check we're writing and who we're following on and who we're continuing to support because we don't have as much capital as these larger traditional Silicon Valley funds like a Sequoia, et cetera, um, because it's so difficult for any emerging managers to uh, raise. And um, we've done fine. Like we're going in out for our fundraise for fund three, which I can legally say because we've registered as a 506C for anyone listening. Um, but uh, which is a new thing we're trying, but like the, I just look around us and I want more female VCs and it's really frustrating because it's impossible to get a check from these larger institutions being like the endowments for universities or pension funds. Like these people say, oh, we want to get to know you over the next five to 10 years. And I'm like, okay, it's been five years. And then they're like, well, five to 10 years. And yeah. And I'm like, I hope I don't need you in five to 10 years. You know, like I hope that I have my investors who continue to invest because they like trust me and I've done well for them. Um, and our track record's really incredible. It's a, a, it's something it's frustrating that we have to prove it. So the other thing is I think people think you're like rolling in money as a VC and they're like, well, why can't you hire me? Or how do I break into VC? Or like you just write the check personally. And, um, you know, if you raise, like, let me just do the math for you. I'm banking on my winnings. So like I raise, uh, so call it $10 million. I raise $10 million and my management fee is two or two and a half. So you're talking 250,000. Uh, and that's what I have to manage my fund. And so then the rest of that capital is invested essentially into businesses. And so they need to do well and sell or go public in order to like make many returns for us. Um, and so, uh, as a manager, it's like, I wish I could hire more and do more. Um, but really 
it's like the opposite of growing a business. So you grow a business and you have, you can actually create more revenue and you can continue to grow and hire as a VC. You're, it's like the issue of constantly depleting resources. So like you just have to go is again, when you need more money to manage and grow your business. So there is something sort of like flawed in the system. Um, and I'm working on many solutions, <laughs> um, but it's a, uh, uh, but it's a really great industry and I love it. When it comes to social proof, kind of what we hinted at there, like what actually gets the Harvard endowment dollars in a fund? You know, you were applying for the Kaufman fellowship. I was just pulling up that email. Like, is that helpful enough? Like, do you need to have someone that's ex Sequoia as a partner or an advisor? Is that enough? I don't really know. I mean, I think the cool thing about VC is, um, is that it is a people business. I think it's, but I want to keep it and maintain this like people business part of it because I think people always will have something to say. What I've often found is, you know, I've pitched probably a thousand investors over the years and we have 85 in our fund. Um, but just for the last couple of funds, I've pitched so many. And what I found is the ones who say something like they're really hard on you and they're grilling you on terms and they're like, you know, oh, well, you don't have you know, a technical partner, or you don't have someone who's like built a business or you don't have whatever. I don't know. They're just finding something wrong. Typically, like they don't have the capital to deploy at that time. And I wish that they would just (laughs) communicate that and say, you know, we're not investing right now. (laughs) And you're like, so now I've started just being like, are you investing right now? When I start sensing that, I'll be like, are you are you writing checks like right now? Because no one wants to waste anyone's time. But for some reason, when you're dealing with money, it's like people don't want to say that they don't have it right now. And so that's kind of been a fascinating thing to me. But um, it's, you know, I think anyone could get a check from the Harvard Endowment. It's just like, unfortunately, it's a problem of pattern recognition where they're continuing to go to the same funds. And it's three to five of them. And they're all on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. And uh and you don't get fired if you write a check to Sequoia. Although this FTX thing just happened and like, but like, I hope that people are starting to see the cracks in that system. They really need to invest in other emerging managers now. Did you see the uh, Sequoia chat as part of the article that they posted? Oh, no, I haven't seen it. I've saw, I saw the cap table and that was just like mind blowing to me. I was like, how did this con artist raise from so many people? <laughs> Apparently he was playing a League of Legends game during the meeting and the the partners were, they were saying like, yes, I love this founder. I'm a 10 out of 10, like just over the moon comments. Like this guy was, you know, as Forbes said, the next Warren Buffett, right? So it's, you know, that's so disappointing for me, honestly. Like I work really, really hard and I know so many incredible managers who work so hard and so many founders who work so hard. And like to hear that, like he wasn't taking it seriously, like is really, it's really upsetting to me. And then to hear that they wrote him almost a half a billion dollars when like I have founders who are running profitable businesses and doing so well um, and they like have so much trouble raising because it's a breast pump company or um, something that, that these men don't always understand and they're not willing to try. And then they're like, oh, he's playing a League of Legends game. And that's interesting to me. And he's not even paying attention or taking this seriously, which to me would be like, that's how he's going to run a business. Like that actually really pisses me off. 
Well, okay. I, I'm a guy and one thing that I was having a conversation with my mom about is, I, I don't know how to say this in like just a blunt way, but she was like, I find that men are more confident than women, generally speaking. Oh, you're not offending me by saying that. They definitely are. I have data. And is the fact that all this this big money is going to people like FTX, going to other firms, is that you know they aren't afraid to like bullshit and like pump their chest out a little bit more? I know it's weird. Like I feel very lucky because I grew up in a family where we were taught to take these risks. And but yeah, women are less confident than men because we feel like we have to be much more calculated and have all the answers. And what I say to that is like, don't feel like you have to have all the answers. You're never going to have all the ducks in a row. The thing is, we need everybody. Like this isn't a man hating club. It's like, I get such funny questions. So for those of you out there listening, we invest in early stage female founded consumer tech. We have 70 companies and we have three male CEOs. But I get these questions like, well, what if a guy works there? And I'm like, well, we're building billion dollar businesses. It would be so strange if guys didn't work there, wouldn't it? Like we need everybody, you know? But I think in terms of the confidence, we need both of us. And I keep, I'm constantly meeting women who, they'll make a billion dollars and sell their company or whatever. And then they'll hand it to their husband to manage it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just made all this money. He's married to you. So for sure, he can have some access to this. But what do you want to do with it? It's like, oh, that's just what he does. He manages the money. It's like, okay, well, what's he doing to manage it? So I'm constantly saying, take, you know, get involved like with whatever's going on in your finances, like um, make sure, you know, as a wife or significant other, you have 50% access to that um, wealth that you've created. Like make sure you're investing it where you want to invest it. And then I hear from these women, well, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, okay, well, the more risk you take, the more opportunity you have to learn. And so why don't you just try, like try investing and buying a Bitcoin, like try investing in the stock market on your own, pick a couple stocks, like invest in a private business. You know, you have that opportunity, make sure that you're staying involved. Don't like back away. But women have been taught over time to stay quiet and not talk about money. And men like talk about business deals all the time and feel very comfortable doing it. And like you're saying, like figuring it out. And um, I think that women need a little more of that, like sort of gambling mentality and men need a little more of like the women's de-risking perspective where it actually, if you have this combo, you actually are going to be much better investors because women take much more calculated risk. So women have like a million things go through their heads before they take that risk. So they've actually thought about all the different angles of, you know, where this deal could go or what it'll look like, or what if this happens or what if this happens? But then also we need more of that gut check. Like, you know what? I feel good about this founder. You know, I would not feel good about the uh, League of Legends guy who was playing Legends well on Zoom. Like I have so many questions about this and anyone who wrote the check, you're an idiot. But, um, and like, by the way, as a VC, like you do take risks like that. So like you lose a lot of money to make money, but I wouldn't, I can't imagine like someone coming in and playing a video game. I had a girl come in one time and then like take a phone call. And there was this line of founders who were pitching and like, she was like, 
very, I don't know. It was just like, she wasn't taking it seriously. I was like, I don't care what this business is. Like, she's not like, I'm not going to do this deal because you, you want people who are committed, who are working really hard, who are really excited to pitch their business. This is their dream, you know? And like, he's playing league of legends. Like that's, I mean, whatever you got me on a day that I'm just like over it. Can you tell? Um, I love being here though, Cassia. So thank you for having me. (laughs) So that begs the question, what are some red flags and green flags in pitches to Jesse Draper? Green flags to me are people who are open and um, can build an enormous idea. I do find some founders come in and they pitch you like this one thing and it's, um, oh, I'm building this, you know, one product and um, this is all we're selling. This is all we're doing. And I'm like, okay, well, with all due respect, we invest in billion dollar businesses and we need this to be bigger. So what does that look like? And the green flag for me in that situation would be like, the founder who's like, then we're going to launch this product. Then we're going to go into this. Then we're going to take over the world. And then the red flag would be like, well, this is the only way we can do it. We can only go this way. And we're going to run into a wall and we're going to do this. And like, you can't do it any other way. I'm like, this is not the founder. And I actually sense that a lot from consultants and from lawyers, because both of them have been trained in their professions to, and there's always an exception to the rule. So like anything I say here, there's always an exception, but Lawyers and consultants are often trained to assess all risk. So it's actually really tough to be a founder after that because all you see is the downside and you have to only see the upside as a founder. As an early stage investor and as a founder, you have to only see the upside. Um, And so I'd say a red flag would be like any sense of like, we can't do that because all I see is this is the way we're going to go. Because you and I both know a founder journey is not straight. It's not a straight line. It's like up and down many mountains. You think you're winning and then you're not, and then you are. And then like, you know, you almost go under and then you sell your company for a billion dollars. It's like just crazy, um, but so fun and so worth it. And we need more women out there doing it with incredible male co-founders. It's awesome. No, I think that's amazing. I, I wanted to actually talk about, I think it's called Vina or Vina Capital. It was in Ho Chi Minh City, and I think he did an internship there. What have you seen in terms of differences between American founders, maybe people in Asia, people in Europe, and what the kind of sentiment is from VCs? Um, That's such an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, that was probably 25 years ago. I interned there, and I'm sure I was their worst intern of all time, but um, (laughs) it was an asset management company. And it was so amazing living in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, I was definitely a minority there and like 10 feet taller than everyone, um, in Vietnam. And I recommend that for everyone. Everyone should feel like a minority like that at some point in time. Um, but it was such an incredible experience. Um, and I can't speak to Vietnam specifically because I have, I have not been back and I have heard that they have blown up. But when I worked there, uh, it was an emerging market and it was really not emerged. I mean, there wasn't toilet paper in a lot of places. Like it was very um, uh, basic bare bones. I think they had sort of one mall, but like most of the districts were, uh, I mean, really not a lot of technology going on there. Although they always had motos, like those little motorcycle things, um, which is a it's great technology like the United States is one of the leaders just in terms of like business overall. 
However, you go to Paris and, um, you know, France is definitely a leader in climate. Like they are way ahead. And I actually, uh, I actually think they're, they're surpassing us dramatically, but their government's very different. So um, I think their government inhibits a lot of their kind of like um, mass market opportunities too. Um, But they're way ahead technology wise in terms of climate, because they're actually like trying all these new technologies. I feel like in the United States, a lot of these technologies are being built, but like the United States isn't taking them seriously and implementing them. So I actually see us falling behind in climate and like from France is like definitely leading the way there. And I would give you an example, like literally as simple as the Starbucks cups are already all paper, the tops, the bottoms, all of it. And then they're like always thinking about recycling, et cetera. And then I was like in Portugal and I'm really, I have three little boys and I, um, I am always thinking about childcare and we did a huge study on the future of families uh, at Halogen and we've invested in WeCare, which has 55,000 in-home vetted childcare locations across the country um, and offers like government subsidies and benefits programs from corporations. And like, they're this amazing company offering affordable childcare to families, which is something majorly lacking, but going to Portugal um, they're way ahead in childcare. Like they, I, you know, you get to the airport, it's like they have their little um, playground for kids. They have a little um, vending machine for kids. They have, you just feel it right when you land. Um, they have, you can check out a stroller and check it back in. And like, as a mom who's had to bring all of that on my own, like the United States just makes childcare, it's broken. Around the world, it's so much better. So I think whatever emerging manager, emerging market you're thinking about, like there is something that they're doing better. And that's the best way to look at it is like, what can I learn from this um, territory? Because, uh, you know, there's something that they're better at because of their history or the technology that they have access to. And so I look around the world for ideas for this childcare opportunity because it's just, it's just better everywhere else. And it's so broken in the United States. People pay more for childcare than they do for rent. And it's like, how do we build our families, you know, if that's the case? So, um, so I don't know if that's the exact answer you were looking for, but I love learning about other um, countries and kind of what they're doing and what they're thinking about and what they're ahead in. Because I mean, ultimately business is the largest competition in the world. So like who's winning? I want to learn from them. And I certainly don't know everything. No, oh, it, it, it is a very good philosophy to have. And you hinted at it there, but you're a mom of three boys and you run a VC firm and you have other commitments. How do you manage everything? Uh, can you give us a bit, or some tips and tricks for time management and squeezing from a stone? I have an incredible husband and he makes this possible. Um, he is so amazing. And he most recently joined me as my CFO. So he works with me. Um, but you know, when I think he saw our fund start taking off, he was like, um, he's a CPA and he was at a private equity fund before, and he's just really, really good at what he does. And he was always kind of advising or helping me on the side, but him stepping in and really supporting our team is the reason I can do what I can do. You really need a 50, 50 partner. He calls it 100, 100. Um, and 
you know, he helps take the, take the kids to doctor's appointments, etc. I also have a full-time nanny, which is unaffordable for 99% of the United States. And I'm very aware of that. And I'm trying to change it by investing in um, new technologies and services to support families. Um, and, you know, I definitely couldn't do it without her. And, um, you know, I have help. And then, you know, you also just need a system. So we had a third kid who was a magical, beautiful surprise during COVID. And um, we kind of have a system now. It's like, okay, here's how we do it. Here's how we get our kids to school. Turns out the the first two kids go to two different schools. And then the third kid, I brought the school to me. So we have like a little pod in the backyard. And then I basically make my life, I have a five mile radius for my life. So except when I'm traveling for work, which is a lot too, but like, you know, to and from school, to and from wherever, like I just, it's like, it needs to be five miles. Um, otherwise, like I can't do it. Um, and so we're, you know, and then I like the one tip and trick I give people is wh- who's a working parent is like, you really need that 50, 50 partner, or you like need that village around you. Um, but as a mom, <clears throat> I'm on all the mom chains and the like, there's like, room mom emails and there's principal emails and there's, you're just like, you, this is crazy. Like I already have 50,000 emails in my inbox that I'm looking at right now. I don't know how I'm, I'm going to miss all these kids emails. So I made this separate email for my kids and everything kid related that is for my husband and I, and I only check it on Sunday nights at 5 PM. And if there's some, and then it's like, then I can read all the like hundreds of emails I get from all the schools. And if there's something I usually am able to pull it together if there was some project to do the next day or something. I usually can like figure it out um, if I miss something. But like that has helped me so much because I think as a mom, you're going like mom, work, mom, work, mom, work. And that was really hard for me. So I have to be like in work mode or in kid mode. Um, But it's, I mean, it's a lot. I have three little kids. It's a lot. It's, you definitely can't do it all and you can't do it all well, but I'm working on it. (laughs) What what is something that you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? What am I passionate about? Um, that's such a good question. I mean, right now, it's, yeah, right now it's the future of families thing. I mean, I've just that's sort of a new category we're excited about. But um, I do a lot of work supporting foster care communities, and that's really um, I'm really passionate about that. I think foster care is a solvable problem. Um, and then actually I'm, I'm my family's genealogist. So I love ancestry.com and I, that's my late night gaming habit. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I do genealogy on ancestry.com. Um, and so my family knows this now. I did a big presentation for them last year for Christmas to tell them where we came from. <laughs> and, um, and um, it's fun. So now my family knows this. So they all send me all any old photos they find. Like They'll just be like, for like, I'm like the genealogist. So they'll just send them to me. And then I've done all the tests, like the 23andMe and the um, Ancestry.com one. They're both a little different. Um, and that's all fascinating. Like, I mean, I see, I, I converse occasionally with relatives I don't know in different states that I like when I need more information to like... Um, continue a line. <laughs> um, and actually it's really interesting to think about too, because, you know, when you get married, there's always this, like, are you going to take your husband's name or not? And I didn't because 
my Aunt Polly didn't, my Cheryl Sandberg didn't, and I just sort of was like, I don't know, this is me, I'm Jesse Draper, whatever. But I'm actually really happy I didn't because I look at women in history and it's actually a really big pain in the butt when I don't know someone's maiden name because men's names take over, um, you know, and so you follow the men's name, man's name back, but you can't, you, you almost have to guess sometimes as to what the women's maiden name is. Um, so you, you get stumped because of the maiden name every time. Um, so anyway, that's just my little <laughs> tangent on genealogy, but I highly recommend it. It is very, very fun. And I've done it for about 15 years. That's, that's awesome. Okay. Well, it is 1145. We perfect time to stop. Um, but again, like a huge thank you for doing this. I asked some pretty, not hard questions, but ones that are a bit personal as well. So I really appreciate you answering them. So thank you so much. No, thank you. This was so fun. Okay, so this concludes our conversation with Jesse Draper, the founder of Halogen VC. If you like this episode, be sure to give it a download as well as a rating and review wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Cassius Felicella. Thanks for listening.